Hi, I'm Mark Chavez. I'm one of the hosts of Let's Make a, a comedy docuseries podcast about the creative process. Each season, my co-hosts, Ryan Beal, Maddie Kelly, and I, take on an artistic challenge and you follow our journey. In Let's Make a Sci-Fi, we wrote a science fiction TV pilot. In Let's Make a Rom-Com, we wrote a romantic comedy film. And on our latest season, Let's Make a Horror, we produced a horror short film. And when we run into trouble, we interview Hollywood experts. People who have worked on big things like The Blair Witch Project, The Office, Star Wars, Mamma Mia, and more. All three seasons of Let's Make a are available now, wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. There are very few people in the world who can look at the mega-famous superstar rapper known as Drake and call him My Little Aubrey. Linda Schuyler can do this. She co-created the Degrassi franchise back in 1979. She's been the driving force behind every iteration ever since, including Degrassi The Next Generation, which starred Drake before he was Drake. She will take you inside the room of his very first audition and also tell you how her own background as a school teacher helped shape the kind of stories she wanted to tell. Plus, when you make a big move, it changes you, right? Jessie Lanza will tell you how making the big move from Hamilton, Ontario to Los Angeles shaped her confidence and her sound. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. You're listening to Q. All right, pour the milk, bust out the cookies, have a listen to this. If you sat in front of the TV after school on any given day over the past few decades, you might recognize at least one of those theme songs from Degrassi. It all started back in 1979 with the kids of Degrassi Street. And no matter what version or cast or theme song you might have grown up with, you could always count on Degrassi to tell stories that were raw and real and tackled issues that other shows on TV weren't necessarily ready to tell. Linda Schuyler co-created the original series. She has seen it through every growing pain and every triumph since. And she shared a bunch of those stories in her memoir. It's called The Mother of All Degrassi. Here's my conversation with Linda Schuyler. Linda Schuyler, welcome back to Q. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. You had the biggest smile on your face while we were listening to those theme songs. Oh, my goodness. It's really hard not to feel happy when you um, hear those theme songs. And, you know, it. we wanted the theme songs to capture, like, hope and enjoyment. Because you, you listed off a whole shopping list of um, uh, subjects that we have dealt with on the show. Yes. And it can sound like we're a pretty serious show. But it's also been important over the years to capture that that joy and um, just the, the beautiful sense of first-time experience experience for young people. That's it. You feel like you're on the brink of something yes. when you watch the show, right? And when you listen to that music. You know, you've written this book and reflected on all of it. Just how does it feel to have your own stories out there right now for the first time? Um, I have to be honest with you. It was it was much harder than I thought it was going to be to write my own story. Mm. Because what I have found over the years, starting way back when I was in the classroom, I'm a good listener. And as a television producer, I'm also used to working with a team. I've had a wonderful team of writers, a team of, you know, people who helped me pull the show together, an ensemble cast of actors. 
And when I sat in front of my computer, and it was the computer, and it was me, I found it I found it a very lonely experience, and it took me quite a while to get into the rhythm of how I was going to start telling, which is both my story and the evolution of Degrassi, because they're so interwoven, right? Absolutely. Did you have to force yourself to sit down and do it in the beginning? In the beginning, I did. Yeah. And you know what's really interesting? I ultimately, when I was sort of wondering what the tone would be, I ultimately took my cue from how we wrote Degrassi scripts, because one of the things that I was always big on with my writers was there was nothing that we should be afraid to talk about. Mm. But we're not doing it to be ripped from the headlines. We don't want to be sensational. But at the same time, we don't want to be trivial. We don't want to say to young kids, oh, don't worry, this will go away. So we wanted to be face it all head on for them. And I thought, well, if that's what I'm expecting from my scripts, I should expect that from myself when I write my book. So some of the more difficult places for me to go, I, so I drew strength from how we told story on Degrassi. Oh, beautiful. It's so clear for anyone who's watched Degrassi that the show loves teenagers. Mm. Uh, and I want to know if you can tell me what you were like when you were a teenager. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, I was a British immigrant. And when we arrived, I was eight years old in grade three. And the kids were unkind to me. I, w I was teased for the, my accent. And my mother sent me to school in my um, British schoolgirl's uniform with tie and knee socks and Oxfords. And I didn't have a very comfortable couple of years early on in school. But I was determined to fit in, and I would go home, and I would practice talking like a Canadian, and I, <laughs> I got rid of all the bobbies and the loos, and I, they became policemen and toilets, and no more pavement, and we had sidewalks. <laughs> so by the time I was a teenager and I hit high school, yeah. my days of feeling outside and another were sort of over, and I think I have to describe myself as probably one of those horrible overachievers. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So you go from being a self-described overachiever in, in high school to teaching teenagers at Earl Grey Senior Public School. And that's where you made your first documentary called Between Two Worlds. Your students were your inspiration. Mm -hmm. Why did you want to tell your students' stories? Well, <clears throat> it's interesting because I was actually a reluctant teacher. I, um, when I was in grade 12, I think it was, the um, guidance counselor called us in for the mandatory meeting and said, Linda, we've looked at your aptitude test and we're so thrilled. You're going to have a great career as a teacher or a nurse. And it Whoa. was kind of, oh, that's it? That's all I can look forward to? Now, I don't mean to be damaging to teachers or nurses, I, I just hoped that it might have been something a little more exciting out there. I didn't even know in the late 60s that television producer or entrepreneur were jobs that yeah. I could have. So, But you end up becoming a reluctant teacher. I did. It turns out that it, uh, th there's no question I was a good teacher. Yeah. And, I, and I loved my students. And um, when I stood in front of my first uh, inner city Toronto classroom at Earl Grey, I saw diversity like I had never seen before. I'd grown up in Paris, Ontario, and it was just, you know, a small southern Ontario town, and there was no diversity in, in the town. So when I saw that I had kids from the Caribbean, I had them from Russia, I had them from um, Italy, I had them, they were from all over. And I thought, 
they go home and many of them speak a different language at home. They go home and they have expectations from their family that are far different than many Canadian families. And I remembered back to being that awkward little grade three girl who felt as an outsider. Yeah. And yet I was white, I spoke English, and I just wanted to know from my kids what it was like. And I thought, I really would love to tell their stories. How did, how did telling their stories through this documentary end up informing the way that you told stories on Degrassi? Obviously, I had no idea that Degrassi was in my future at sure. that point. But it was the stories were all told in the kids' voice. It was all from their point of view. Um, it wasn't like we had um, adults sort of explaining the situation. It, it came from the kids' point of view. Um, I also... I also wanted it to be fun. Like we, we shot footage at school dances. We, I took my kids on a skiing trip and two beautiful twins from the Caribbean had never seen snow before and we had fun with that. But I, I also wanted to hear some of the, the more challenging things that they had to say. And there was, a, there was a, one pretty tough interview that came out of it where I spoke to um, one of the, the boys from the Caribbean he was telling me he was just such a beautiful kid with a lovely big smile. And so he told me some great stories. And I said, have you ever had any, like, challenges? And he said, well, yeah, just the other day I was buying a hamburg next door. And um, some kids said to me, hey, you. And they used the N-word. And they told me to shut the door. And he said, and I just felt like I didn't belong. And... And it was so honest and so raw. And uh, so I found, I found what I, it was the first time I had experience in the editing room. And what I was trying to do was find a comfortable home where you could keep both the rawness of Donald's interview and keep the joy of them skiing and being at school dances. And, um, and, and I, I was actually pleased with the balance that we got. And that balance talks to what I was saying about earlier, not sensationalizing, not trivializing, meeting kids right where they are, giving them a voice that, that makes them feel empowered. If you're just joining us, uh, you're listening to Q, and I'm talking to Linda Schuyler, co-creator of Degrassi and now author of a memoir called Mother of All Degrassi. There are so many Degrassi episodes we could talk about that I frankly want to talk about as a longtime fan of the show. Um, but I want to start with this one. It was a series of episodes called My Body is a Cage from 2010, uh, which won a Peabody Award. It's about a transgender teen named Adam. Let's have a listen uh, to a scene. Come on, let me in. I need to do my hair. Well, Almost done. You said that like 10 minutes ago. It took you less time to get ready when you were a girl. I was never a girl, idiot. I thought you'd open the door, though, didn't I? Guys, your breakfast is getting cold. Okay, we're coming. Is she still in the bathroom? Really, Mom? Pronoun problems still? Sorry, Adam. Let's go. I swear she does that on purpose. Nah, she just forgets. But I bet she's hoping to switch back to girl mode for Grandma tomorrow. Your sons will be down in a second. Watch out! That's a scene from My Body is a Cage, one of many Degrassi storylines about teenagers grappling with their gender and sexual identities. And uh, first of all, Linda, just tell me a bit about the episode and, and what we just heard. 
Well, it's interesting. You know, we had had, I th- every year at the beginning of a, a season, we would put on the whiteboard episodes or themes that we hope to deal with throughout the course of the season. Mm-hmm. And introducing a transgender character had something been something that had been on the board for two or three years. and But we hadn't, it was always important for us to have the right way into a story. If We didn't just want to go to a story because it was written from the headlines. We wanted to find a, a, a way to tell the story that would be really meaningful. And um, it was Michael Grassi who came up with The Body is My Cage, the premise for My Body is a Cage. And when he pitched it to the writer's room and to me, he talked about wanting to meet this character, Adam. And we were going to get to know Adam first as one of the guys. And for a couple of the episodes, we just met Adam as one of the guys and nobody thought anything of it. And then the clip that you just played... Um, that was the episode where we really um, went in and explored it, and you can and you can hear how just small things like hit the mother using the wrong pronouns, yeah. which and you have to think from a mother's point of view, it's a confusing time as well. And yet again, the story was all told. It wasn't about the mother's acceptance of it. It was about young Adam who was determined to be. Uh, accepted and embraced for who he was. You can hear also Adam working it out with his brother, mm. like going back and forth and saying, you know, she does that, on, she messes up my pronouns on purpose, or yep. it's just an accident. You know, like you can, you're you're letting all, what what happens in in public discourse play out with teens, but it sounds. Um, I don't know, it just sounds so powerful coming out of their mouths to hear that. And and we also. We're trying to, with so many of the difficult topics that we've taken on, we're just trying to normalize it. And, you know, and doesn't matter if you're um, a, a young man dealing with your, you know, sexuality or who you are. Your mother's still going to, like, call you and be angry if you're late for breakfast. And there's still going to be homework that has to be done. So we always tried to position our characters who were going through um, challenging issues also to keep the the sense of a normal teenage life surrounding them. Yeah. You write in the book about uh, Bruce, who is a mm. really dear person to you. And I think part of, uh, part of, I guess, maybe the early reason for wanting to tell LGBTQ stories well on Degrassi. Can you just tell us a little bit about Bruce? Yeah. Bruce, um, I met Bruce uh, when I met my students in Earl Grey, and he was the librarian at the time. And he was also a fellow Aquarian, and in his um, library list, he would order any books that had movie or TV in the title, because he said, oh, and he used to call me Schuler, which drove me nuts. But he <laughs> said, Schuler, this, is, this book's for you, or whatever. He was such a supporter and such a fan. And we became very close as friends. And it became obvious very early on in our relationship that Bruce lived a duplicitous life. He was this wonderful, energetic, caring teacher during the week from Monday to Friday. Students loved him. And then from Friday night on till the end of Saturday, he was in the gay bars. He was in the um, baths. He was cruising through High Park. Um, We're talking now, you know, the 1980s. And Bruce was gay, and he could not come out at school as gay, which is a travesty. Um, And in fact, if you remember, it was in the 1980s, the late 1980s, that the police raids happened on the gay bathhouses, and people were outed on the front page of the Toronto Star. And it was, I saw 
this beautiful friend of mine living this duplicitous life, mm. and it just seemed wrong. And it was because of my love of Bruce that I became so dedicated over the years to telling stories about the LGBTQ plus community. And we told over and over again many, many different takes on stories. Don't you think he would be proud of you? Oh, my gosh. I wish he died earlier than he should have. And I I wish he could have seen that episode that you just played the clip of. Um, he would have... He would have been so proud of that. Mm. One of the special things about Degrassi is you have people playing their own age. Mm. That's rare, right? We're used to like Greece, you know, where where people in their 30s or even 40s are playing high schoolers. Uh, and it makes things a much more difficult from a union perspective, from a shooting perspective. You got to have their parents there. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, you write in the book about having to develop something called the X factor to help mm. these young people sort of deal with what they were doing on screen versus their regular lives. Can you explain what that is? Well, first of all, my commitment to casting age appropriate is based on, you know, you can find 25-year-olds who look 15. Mm-hmm. And, but when the camera is on them, that face brings 10 years of life experience to the screen that you can't wipe away. So when I have a 15-year-old playing 15, they've only got 15 years of life experience. And that, I think, helps the show be just that much more authentic. But the flip side of that is my cast are all young people living through exactly the issues that are in the show and our audience are, are experiencing. And I'll, I remember it was when we did an um, episode about Arthur Kobolowski, who um, phoned in to Dr. Um, Sally, who was actually played by Sue Johansson. Oh, the and legendary Sue. <laughs> the legendary Sue Johansson. Sex with Sue Johansson, yeah. Okay, who, yeah. who played Dr. Sally on our show. She was awesome. Uh-huh. And he had to phone in, and he said, um, I woke up this morning, and in my bed I have kind of leaked. Am I a pervert? And... So she said to him, that's perfectly natural. You were having a wet dream. That's perfectly normal. So it was a charming little script, and it was part of the subplot. When the show went on air, I got a call from Duncan's mom. And she said, Duncan has come home in tears. The kids at his own school are teasing him because is he so stupid? He doesn't know what a wet dream is. And it was like, oh, my gosh. This is not fair. So we, we had to develop what you called, um, referred to as the X factor. And we did a workshop with all of our young people. And we had to help them draw a hard line between the character that they were playing on television and themselves. Uh, and it turned out that he wasn't the only one who was dealing with it. Spike was being called all sorts of bad things because she'd had sex and she was a teenage mom. Um, it also worked the other way around, whereas Pat Mastriani, who played Joey Jeremiah, said, well, he thought the role on television made him more studly, and that was a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's got to be hard, though. Like, you're making this show that has such an anti-bullying stance and that's so um, loving towards teens, and then to hear that from your cast, that that's something to get through. Mm. Um, you just mentioned Spike and, and Spike's pregnancy, which happened on Degrassi in 1987 at a time, I think, when that was not represented on on screen. Uh, and I want to play a little clip from from that very episode where she's um, Spike finds out she's 14 years old and she's talking to her boyfriend, Shane, about what to do. Mm. 
Oh, this is so horrible. You don't want me to marry you, do you? There are people who can't have babies. So they adopt other people's babies. But I don't want to get big and stuff. Everyone will know. What if I didn't have the baby? And get an abortion? Can't kill a baby. It's not a baby. It's only a fetus. It's alive. It's got rights. But what about my rights? I don't want to be a mother. I don't want to be a father, but an abortion. I don't want to have an abortion, but I don't want to have a baby. I don't want any of this. I'm just a kid. Why is this happening? It's a scene from Degrassi Junior High, the episode It's Late, which won an international Emmy. Must have been a controversial episode for its time, and it's really interesting to listen to at this time. Oh, my goodness. First of all, I was struck listening to that, how young those voices sounded. Yeah. Um, but yes, with the overturn of Roe versus Wade, I mean, who would have thought we would be back having to deal with this again? Um, it, shocking. Why did you want to tell the story at that time? Well, again, it, it like so many of the early stories that I told, they were based on my personal experience. And um, my 15-year-old sister ha- was pregnant. And in those times, the way one dealt with a pregnant teenager was they were sent to homes for unwed mothers that happened to be a few hundred miles away from where one lived. And, um, and the, the story around town would be, oh, well, she's gone to visit her auntie. And then she would come home and there would be no baby and then she would get back to school. And Now, my sister is particularly feisty, which probably doesn't surprise you being my sister. <laughs> and yes, she went away, but no, she would not give up the baby. And um, I was so proud of her resilience. And, but it was a fight for her. And it was the same as, as with my friend Bruce. I, she shouldn't have had to fight. Um, it's hard enough finding out that you're a pregnant teen without having to have the stigma of society, you know, branded on, on your forehead. So I, again, I wanted to normalize teen pregnancy. Not that, not that it's an advertisement that you should get pregnant as a teen. Sure. But yeah. just it does happen. So how can we treat it with dignity, respect, and still allow our young protagonists to have a good school life? Something that I find so interesting in thinking about how many iterations of Degrassi there's been and, and how many, you know, you spanned decades, maybe at the time of the original series or back in the 80s, there was a much more clear line of what was taboo to talk about and mm. to not talk about. And now it's hard to know what the what the edge even is for cultural conversation. It, it, it's interesting you mentioned that because... When we first started with Degrassi Junior High and Degrassi High, there was absolutely no other shows in that space. And um, so we kind of got to invent the rules as we went along. Now, of course, it's a very, very crowded space. A lot of, a lot of interesting shows are really going out there towards the edges. What I maintain for Degrassi is it still always has to be from the young person's perspective. And so even when they're dealing with something, like if they're dealing with self-harm, or th- they've still got 
a history project that has to be due on time. Or they, there, there are constraints of being a teenager that I think a lot of other shows uh, give themselves the freedom to go into whatever the subject matter might be. And this is not saying that they're wrong at all. It's just what we've chosen, the, the lane we've chosen to swim in is the one where we do deal with the subject matter, whatever it might be, but we don't forget that there's homework due and there's like siblings who you have to navigate at home with at home and and I and I think that sort of sets us apart from other teenage shows. No matter what you're dealing with, there's still homework to do. True. <laughs> Linda Schuyler, a brilliant co-creator of the Degrassi franchise and author of the memoir The Mother of All Degrassi. More of our conversation coming up, but first have a listen to this. I don't for them to miss me Yes, I see the things that they wishing on me Hope I got some brothers that outlive me They gon' tell the story was different with me God's plan God's plan I hold back sometimes I won't yeah. I feel good sometimes I don't yeah. The artist you're hearing right now is on tour across Canada and the U.S. through October but before he was Drake, he was Jimmy on Degrassi. You're going to hear more of my conversation with Linda Schuyler, and she is one of the few people who was in the room when he auditioned as a little youngster, a nervous little youngster, as it turns out. She will tell you the whole story. Plus, you'll hear new music from Hamilton's Jesse Lanza, a song that's about being stuck that also makes you want to dance. And Talia Schlanger sitting in for Tom Power. More cue in just a bit. She say, do you love me? I tell her only partly. I only love my bed and my mom. I'm sorry. 50 dub. I even got it tatted on me. 81. They'll bring the crashes to the party. And you know me. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. There'll be some days when I would walk into the office and I would go, oh my gosh, Thursday is payroll. We don't have the bank loan through yet. How are we going to meet the payroll this week? Which happened more than once. I would be worried like this. In the TV industry, Linda Schuyler had to start from the bottom, manage a whole lot of stress along the way. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power, and you're in the middle of my conversation with Linda, who co-created the grassy and turned it into a multi-decade, multi-generational success. Linda wrote a memoir called The Mother of All Degrassi, where she shares stories about creating the show and running the show, and one very special story about casting Degrassi's most famous alumni. Have a listen. Started from the bottom, <laughs> now we here. Started from the bottom, now the whole team here. That's started from the Aubrey. Aubrey. <laughs> Aubrey. My little Aubrey. Aubrey Drake Graham. <laughs> 
who started from the bottom, I guess, on, on Degrassi. You, you were in the room when he gave his first audition ever. Oh, my goodness. Um, it was so funny. When, when I heard him come out and started at the bottom, it was like, seriously, dude? Like, <laughs> you think Degrassi's the bottom? <laughs> Ouch! <laughs> Although I must admit, I have subsequently spent time, and I I do understand that perspective. And it's not that he's calling Degrassi starting at the bottom. He actually had to start right at the bottom with his music career. Mm. Like they, he did not have a leg up any which way. And so I'm immensely proud of you know what he's accomplished. But who would have known that that gangly 14 year old who walked into our audition room in I guess it was the year 2001, would be such an international, brilliant superstar. What did you see in him at that time? It was interesting because the, we were casting for the role of Jimmy Brooks, and we had an ensemble show. And at that point, we had cast pretty much, like 90% of the ensemble cast. And we were really having trouble with this character. We couldn't find somebody who had the right charisma and warmth and vulnerability that we were looking for. So we put out the call again to our agents, and one of our agents said, well, you know, my, my son's got a, a friend who, who you might like to see. He doesn't have any resume, but you might like to have. And this is one thing I do, I'm so proud of our show for. We don't require a deep resume. We don't. In fact, in this case, there was no resume. Anyway, so Aubrey Graham came in, and he was like this lanky, rather awkward 14-year-old. And he um, sat down, and he read the audition piece. And the room was very quiet afterwards. And he looked around, and it was his first audition. And he said, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Did I do something wrong? Um, can I do it again? And, and we said, no, no, it's fine. That's good. Thank you very much. And he said, oh, okay. I mean, I, I can do it again. Or, okay, I'll go. So he jumps up. Light stangles starts to wobble. And he comes to shake our hand. Our, our PA grabs the, the light stand. And he puts his hands together, and he backs out of the room. And he says, thank you very much. Thank you for having me closes the door, and there were four of us behind the table, and we all looked at each other and said, we have just found our Jimmy Brooks. <laughs> Best Drake story ever. <laughs> there was a charisma and a warmth to that face and that beautiful smile. Um, it just, and he went on. We had eight wonderful years working with him. He's amazing on the show. Yeah. And one of the many things that he's done since then, uh, including being a international superstar of music is uh, he's the executive producer one of the executive producers of the show Euphoria I know isn't that fantastic it's amazing but a lot of people say that Degrassi paved the way for a show like Euphoria what do you think about that Oh, I don't think about it. Okay. I mean, it's uh, just... <laughs> yeah. But I, I just, I think it's fantastic that he's uh, associated with that. He's, he's a triple threat. I mean, he's a great... It, I'm looking forward to the day that he's going to play um, Barack Obama in the uh, inevitable biopic. Don't you think he'd be great? <laughs> you heard it here first. I mean, I think he'd be great at absolutely yeah. anything. But that's a really interesting casting choice. The, the tagline for Degrassi, The Next Generation, was, It Goes There. I feel like that could also be the tagline for your memoir. Um, you've, as, as you've mentioned, you talk about some really vulnerable and very personal things. Real talk, like how did it feel to you to open up in this way? You're so used to tackling so many difficult things that happen to teens, difficult storylines, as you said, opening up the conversation about absolutely anything. But doing it for yourself, that's got to feel different. It, it, it was tough. I had to sort of give myself a lecture to go there. Um, because 
in particular, um, I was involved in a very difficult car accident when I was 20 years old, and there were three of us in the car, and I'm the only one who survived it. And that accident, it was that accident that actually sent me on the road to teacher's college um, because I, I had no other options when I, to go to, I was too late to enroll in university, so I just went to teacher's college because of the car crash. And then later on in life, I would find that the car crash had left me infertile from the internal damage that I, I had from it. And, and that was really, it, it's interesting, you know, it was one of the hardest uh, bits for me to write of the book was the title was to own the fact that I was the mother of Al Degrassi. Because in my adult life, there has been many moments where I would have loved to have been a mother myself. And, and I've had to, to learn that there are other ways to nurture and there are other ways to own the word mother. But it, it took writing it as the title of my book, and I, I, it, it took me a while to talk myself into the fact that it was okay. I could own that word. I just had a conversation recently with someone in her 50s who's about to adopt her first child. Oh, really? And what she said to me that really um, struck me in the same way as what you're saying. She said, motherhood is an energy and I've had it my whole life, you know? That's beautiful. I I can totally relate to that. Yeah, it's exactly what you're saying. Um, The car accident also that you that you just brought up, I mean, it's sort of a through line throughout the, the book. And one of the things that you can feel as you're reading the memoir is that you're on a journey of working it out for yourself, I think. And the sense that I got was you were on a path maybe of even forgiving yourself for some of the survivor's guilt of it throughout the book. That's a very astute observation. And I I thought about the crash a lot as the Me Too movement was happening. And, and people were talking about survivors of um, sexual abuse were coming forward years later. And people are saying, well, why do you wait so long? And, and I understand that because when I had my car accident, it was 3,000 miles away. It was in England. And by the time I was well enough to travel, all the physical lacerations and scars and bruising was pretty much cleared up. So when I came home, everybody looked at me and, oh, they were relieved because they'd heard I'd been in a car crash and I looked quite normal. And it was very easy for me to just fall into that narrative. And, and, and the reason I, I bring up men and women of sexual abuse is because it happens alone, um, it's very easy to pretend that maybe it didn't happen or if it did happen, it wasn't that bad. And yet our bodies know. And we have this scarring that's really, really deep. And it's, in my case, it was internal physical scarring that created my infertility. It was the emotional scarring of survivor's guilt, and which I think has sometimes been what's given me a lot of my drive. I, I, don't, I don't know. And you're quite right. The book was really an opportunity to explore some of that. It's super brave to do. It's super brave. I want to close by asking you about a, a binder that you've kept through mm. the years uh, called Why I Do What I Do. What's in that binder? Oh, my gosh. Why I Do What I Do. They are pages, collections of 
emails, letters, um, tweets, you name it, feedback that's come, not from the press, but feedback that's come from my young audience, um, from parents, just letting me know how Degrassi storytelling has touched their lives in some way or another. And I'll tell you, there'll be some days when I would walk into the office, I would park my car, and I would look at all the parking, all the cars in the parking lot. And I would go, oh my gosh, Thursday is payroll. We don't have the bank loan through yet. How are we going to meet the, um, the payroll this week? Which happened more than once, I would be worried like this. And I would go into my office, and I would truly take comfort in the Why I Do What I Do books, because it would remind me, okay, Linda, you're doing this because <laughs> this is why. You're connecting with this audience. So we're going to put a collateral mortgage on your house again this month. Or, um, And then I would have the reverse when I would walk into the parking lot and I would see all the cars parked there and I knew that the financing was through and we were paying everybody, I would go, oh, I'm so proud to be an entrepreneur and hire all these people and provide all these quality jobs. <laughs> now, I'm going to ask you a question in return. Do you remember being on Degrassi? Of course I do. <laughs> <laughs> Degrassi is to Toronto-based actors what Law and Order is to New right. York-based actors. If you stick around long enough, you're going to be lucky enough to get a bit part on Degrassi. When Paige was was <laughs> she was first exploring pot, and I played the representative from a university. It was it was amazing, and it was so funny because I actually <laughs> looked at that clip the other night, and there was Paige and Alex who, for some reason, thought it was a good idea to get stoned before the university. <laughs> That's it. That was it. That was it. And they were so baked. Oh, that was so funny. Well, I want to thank you for that opportunity <laughs> and also for just all of the, the many, many, many amazing hours of television and also of conversations that your television has led to. Oh, thank you for having me. Okay, let the record show I was on Degrassi for a maximum of 30 seconds in one episode. Somehow it ended up on my Wikipedia page and it is the first thing that people ask me about. I also played a music festival recently and was introduced on stage as one of the stars of Degrassi. So just want to make it clear that I do not think that I was one of the stars of Degrassi. <laughs> Great show, though. Anyway, that was my conversation with the tremendous Linda Schuyler, co-creator of Degrassi and author of the memoir, The Mother of All Degrassi. You know how music scenes in cities have their moments sometimes? Like I'm thinking of Halifax in the 90s, Montreal in the early 2000s, or Hamilton, Ontario in the 2010s with artists like Junior Boys and this person, Jesse Lanza. That's a taste of Jesse Lanza's first album. It came out about 10 years ago. I remember it and thinking like, this is a very cool sound from a cool sounding person. Jesse has continued to grow her sound since then and she recently relocated to Los Angeles. She's got a new album called Love Hallucination and she joined me to talk about the big move and to introduce us to a brand new song. Here's Jesse Lanza. Hey Jesse, welcome to Q. 
Hey, uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to have you here. And congrats on the new album. I dig it. It's so danceable. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad to hear you say that. For sure. And congratulations to you on, on your recent move to California. I want to know what, what the biggest shock to the system has been about moving there. The winters are fabulous. It's just, <laughs> I didn't think it was going to be as nice, but but it is, you know, so I'm, I'm enjoying that very much. Oh, that's wonderful. It sounds yeah. when I listen to the album, like you were doing some reflecting on place for sure on this record. I mean, one of the songs is called Midnight Ontario. Um, what was on your mind when you were when you were writing these songs? I think moving away from Hamilton, I started thinking so much about Hamilton and all my memories of driving from Hamilton to Niagara Falls. And yeah, just I started thinking about the winter in Hamilton um, versus the the winter in California, maybe, you know, m missing what I can't have. Do you see it more fondly, maybe even things like the the winter about it now that you don't live there anymore? Definitely. I think that's a really natural thing where you um, aren't in a place and then you start to look at it through rose colored glasses a bit. Oh, for sure. I think yeah. Hamilton also is such a big part of your artistry. I mean, you've worked with Junior Boys, uh, longtime collaborator, um, which is another band coming out of Hamilton. Can you sort of put your finger a little bit on or paint us a picture of, of the scene that you came up in there? I think there's a sense of, of longing in the music that because we grew up in Hamilton, I grew up in Hamilton, I was never um, in the middle of what was happening. I always felt like I was outside looking in. And I think that that's, that's reflected in the music quite a lot, just that sense of um, isolation a bit and also uh, longing, I think is the best way I can put it. That's interesting. And also like not vying to be the center of attention and yet being really interesting at the same time. Do you know what I mean? Sure, that you described Hamilton in a nutshell. I think there's a pride there in, in Hamilton being, um, yeah, not the center of attention, not the place that everybody wants to be. Um, it was a challenge for me to be here, but I think that um, absorbing all the confidence of L.A. and the, the fantasy of L.A., I think that helped me grow as an artist a lot because it is like the antithesis of Hamilton. Yeah, here. for <laughs> sure. What you're saying, yeah. the word confidence is an interesting one because there is so much when I listen to your music, there's so much confidence in it. And especially I, I see it show up in how concise you are with your words. Like you get us to the point of a feeling without needing to use a lot of words. And I think that there's a confidence to that as a writer. Oh, thank you. That means a lot. I have always been, it's been like lyrics has been a difficult thing for me to, to get at being direct. So I, I've, I have been working on that for a long time. So <laughs> it's nice to hear that it, it comes across because I, I do feel like I was more confident in my lyrics on love hallucination than I have been before. Oh, that's great. What do you think it yeah. made it made it so? I I think that being in LA and being in the center of like the, you know, the, the all the industries and entertainment are here. <laughs> Just being in that environment. And um honestly though, I think more more so than being in LA, it's just I feel like I'm more myself. Um Maybe it's just getting older or putting out 
another record or I feel more in touch with myself than I have um, ever before. And I think that that's reflected in my music. You're also stretching yourself in really interesting ways. I, I seeing here that you played sax on one of the songs and maybe for the first time since high school. Is that right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I played clarinet and saxophone all through elementary school and high school. And then I didn't play for a long time. And a producer I worked with named Paul White, he suggested a sax solo in one of the songs, which I thought that I don't know about that. But then we tried it and it worked so well. So um, I decided to like pick one up for my live show and like relearn the saxophone. And it's been amazing. It really helped me engage with my live show playing the sax live is it's, it's been really fun okay so that's a bit of uh, the song marathon from your new album love hallucination and the one you brought in for us today to play is called limbo can you tell me about this song Yeah, so when I wrote the demo for Limbo, I was living with my in-laws in the Bay Area and I was waiting to get my green card and I couldn't I couldn't leave the US. I couldn't play any shows. I couldn't visit my family in Canada and I was stuck in this limbo waiting period. And and so I wrote Limbo thinking, like, what if this feeling just never ends? What if I never get that permanent resident card and I'm here forever, unable to leave? People don't realize how difficult it is to navigate the immigration system in the U.S., especially for especially for artists. Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. But um, yeah, you have to have a lot of patience and and time too. I mean, I was really lucky that I had the time to wait. Absolutely, it was like a, lu- a luxury for sure. Yeah, but it it worked out in the end. And you're good now. You're settled now. I'm good now. I can leave. Yeah. <laughs> If you want want to. to. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And you found a really fun way of expressing a frustrating feeling on this song, which which I appreciate. Um, Do you mind introducing it for us? Yeah, sure. I'm Jessie Lanza, and this is my new song, Limbo, from my new album, Love Hallucination. Thanks, Jessie. It was fun to talk to you. So fun to talk to you. Thank you. I can spend the night or I can go. That's Jessie Lanza with a new song called Limbo from her new album, Love Hallucination. Before that, you heard my chat with Jessie Lanza.
And that's it for Q today. Tomorrow on the show, this is a love story for the ages, okay? Richard E. Grant met his wife, Joan Washington, back when he was a struggling actor and she was a successful dialect coach. They had this beautiful romance, spent four decades together and behind, you know, every red carpet moment and his Oscar nomination since that time was Joan and their relationship. She died a couple years ago. Richard has written a memoir about their relationship and about his career, and he'll tell you a whole bunch of stories tomorrow on the show. I'm Talia Schlinger, sitting in for Tom Power. See you next time. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.